On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, a celebration of women in agriculture on this International Women's Day as we take you around Tasmania to meet some of the women celebrating their role in agriculture. Uh, it, it means a range of things. I mean, we have come a long way in the visibility of women working in ag, but I think there's still a little bit of a way to go, particularly around equity, which is the theme for this year's International Women's Day. Women are very capable of doing that. I think they bring a whole lot of compassion and empathy and, and thinking, a natural thinking about people and people leadership is what it's all about. It's really about engaging communities and, and teams and, and the wider stakeholder you know, environment. Yes, some very interesting women coming up for you to meet in the next hour. And being a Wednesday, we'll also have Richard Bailey and the livestock markets in the second half of the show. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday. Weather is settling down or seems to be settling down in most areas. It's been uh, very rough and we will chat to the Bureau at the halfway stage of the country hour. You might have some special thoughts on this day to share with us. That text line number 0438 922 Love to hear from you. 0438922936, especially if you're a woman working in agriculture. Your point of view, greatly appreciated. 0438922936. Well, as we heard, embracing equity is the theme of International Women's Day this year. It was only 30 years ago that women were legally recognised as farmers in Tasmania. In forestry, just 16% of women make up that workforce. Our reporter Larissa Smith caught up with Rain Vandenberg, the Chief Financial Officer of Tasmania's largest forest management company, Forico, to learn more about what needs to change. I suppose I've been very fortunate in my profession to be able to work in lots of different industries right across Australia, here in Tasmania and internationally. And I happen to be in forestry at the moment, but I went via aquaculture at Petuna um, with my colleagues there, but equally in wine, I worked in property management and a whole raft, even meat production at one stage. Not potatoes, though, but, um, <laughs> but maybe next. next. But, uh, yeah, no, so lots of opportunities, I suppose, um, and just love being involved in making things happen. Did you always want a career in accounting? Um, early on, I was a strange kid at school. I topped art and chemistry and accounting and thought I was too, had too much personality to go and count something. But I love it. I love the idea of making, making things happen and, and providing information for better decision making. So. And so, you know, forestry is quite a leap from aquaculture. How did you adjust to that? Well, I think it's about skill set and diversity of thought and that's what we're talking about today. And, you know, I think all industries should embrace looking at people that are coming from other other parts of their lives and different experiences. For me, my profession allows me to do that. It's counting, it's about looking at risk and opportunity and strategy and, and forestry just happens to be where I've landed at the moment and what attracted me was the strong focus in sustainability. So I'm really looking at the values of a company rather than just necessarily what it's actually producing but how it fits within society and the environment. Forestry in Tasmania is still very male dominated. Uh, just 16% of women are represented in the workforce. Where would you like to see that figure in the next five years? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, we're really pleased and proud to say about 33% of Forico's workforce are female. 
that doesn't extend to our contractor workforce and it doesn't necessarily extend into our managerial roles, but it's about finding a pipeline and giving people all the opportunity. So, you know, flexibility is a big, big part of making that happen for both women and men, any parents wanting to start a family. I think it's really important to make that distinction that the burden shouldn't just be on women. Um, you know, lots of women need or want to work and then making sure that they're sharing, sharing duties in the home. I suppose the other one is making sure that women have the opportunity for the breadth of experience, not just being specialists. Um, that will allow them to get up through management into senior roles and then ultimately on boards and, and, and leading, you know, and, and making a contribution to a whole diversity of, of thought and of perspectives. So looking at experience rather than, say, ticking a box to meet a quota. Exactly. And I think women are very capable of doing that. I think they bring a whole lot of compassion and empathy and, and thinking, a natural thinking about people. And people leadership is what it's all about. It's really about engaging communities and, and teams and, and the wider stakeholder you know, environment, etc. So, yeah, and no, I think, you know, as we lean into the next decade where we've got lots of challenges to solve, we're going to need all, you know, Mother Nature's going to need all her daughters and sons collectively putting all their thought and effort and ideas to that. And speaking of Mother Nature, attaching a value to biodiversity is an area where you've been, well, you've given a lot of attention <laughs> lately to this. Why should a company that harvests trees for fibre products need to put a price tag on the trees it's not cutting down? Because it's about making better decisions and value-based decisions, not just for finance. If we're going to be truly sustainable into the future, we need to be thinking about our communities, the environment and prosperity, shared prosperity or profit. That's what really interests me, is looking at all the values to make sure that when we make decisions on our productive estate, we're not eroding value out of the adjoining natural forest areas. It changes the conversation, is the most amazing thing, of putting a value on it. You know, it's, um, people say, how dare you put a value on nature? It's, you know, or price on nature, it's priceless. And or like, is it greenwashing? Well, it's not. No, if you measure it and you're looking at it, I mean, surely that's better than not looking at it and valuing it. You know, value is quite different to a price value, you know, if you don't put a value on it, you're saying it's worthless, which is quite different. So this is about valuing it, understanding what we've got, and then it's only by measuring that that you can actually manage it and make sure that we're not, you know, if we thought about asset as a, uh, nature, apologies, as an asset, not a cost, maintaining that we're investing in nature, we'd be doing things very differently. And that's, that's the exciting bit of how it's changing decisions and making making better decisions right across our business by measuring it and then valuing it. And the work that you've been done, doing on this uh, took you to uh, Montreal late last year for the United Nations Biodiversity Conference. It's yes. a pretty big deal. Uh, what's come of that? Yeah, it was pretty epic. It got missed a little bit in the media in the, all the hurried lead up to Christmas. But that particular COP15 in Montreal, we had our Paris Agreement for Nature. So collectively, 190 countries unanimously agreed to protect nature. So 30% will be protected of sea and land and waterways by 2030, and then a whole lot of other initiatives around reduced plastic use and 
um, mandatory reporting, so trying to encourage companies and organisations to, to disclose their impacts and dependencies so we can make better decisions. So very powerful. Um, and this is, Tas I truly believe this is Tasmania's competitive advantage. You know, we've already got 56% of our land under protection or some kind of, you know, protective conservation arrangement. While the rest of the world's trying to work out how to make this work, how to balance productive landscapes and environment, we're already doing that here in Tasmania and, and we should be really proud of that and, um, and use that to differentiate ourselves in the global marketplace. Rain Vandenberg, uh, Chief Financial Officer with Forico, thanks so much for coming on the program today. <laughs> We're celebrating International Women's Day at a women's breakfast in Launceston. Let's change gears and talk about mental health. Rural Alive and Well, or RAW, is a trailblazing not-for-profit in this space, especially when it comes to supporting rural and regional communities around Tasmania. Lauren Harper is the Communications and Engagement Officer with RAW. Lauren, uh, we've just been talking about forestry. How does that fit into the overall support services that RAW can provide? Forestry for us is, I guess, that expansion piece. So typically RAW has been known as um, supporting farmers. But when we look a bit broader across that whole paddock to plate, um, kind of um, stream forestry is actually a key part of that because if our um, forestry isn't operating properly then our farmers don't actually have uh, fences to be able to put in the ground so we're all kind of intertwined so for us to kind of be able to um, I guess grow Tasmania into this thriving economy we need to make sure that all um, people and occupations across that supply chain are thriving too so we're actually really excited to have um, in the last two years built a purpose-built Built, um, forestry program called Cutting Through. It actually is supported by Forico as well, which is actually really exciting. Um, so they've been the trailblazers with helping support not just their own people, but actually the whole of Tasmania's people, so government or non-government, which is really exciting. And that just addresses situational stresses that they're experiencing and tailors it towards forestry. We've got a saw doctor from 30 years. Um, he's one of a few in the state, but he's actually helped lead the way and helped us understand what, I guess, stress there is in those spaces so we can better um, work in that preventative and intervention space. Yeah. And what other fields do you have staff on the ground with industry experience counselling people? Yeah, so we've got, um, we're about to move into transport, which is really exciting. We've got seafood, we've got agriculture and across ag we've got dairy farmers, um, we've got cropping, we've got mining as well, we've got livestock, we've got cattle, sheep, you name it, our team are from it, but you've all, we've also got those um, staff who grew up rurally. Um, so I grew up down the Tamar Valley 30 years ago when there was nothing but the little Swiss village to wander <laughs> around and play. <laughs> and from now you can kind of see how those areas have developed as well. So yeah. Now RAW has been around for a few years now. Have you tweaked the recipe for what works and what doesn't when it comes to developing connections with people in isolation? Yeah, so for us, we recognise that we still really work in that stoic industry where people are more willing to say, you go and get the support that you need, but I'm still going to carry that for you while you do. So for us, it is first being that friend, but it is, honestly, like you're out at 5am in the morning or you're not getting off the tractor till 12 o'clock at night, spud season coming up and we just found out that there's going to be around 12,000 semi-trailers on the road over the next kind of 
nine weeks, I think, actually it's helping hectic. decrease the um, spud shortage. So that's an incredible figure. And our farmers, on average, there's around five people or less per farm that help reducing that shortage of spuds to our nation, not just Tasmania. So... Yeah. And this is where Friends of Raw Network comes into play. This is a yeah. new initiative. So this is a really exciting one. We um, have been working with our partners to kind of, I guess, understand what's happening on the ground and the conversations that are happening and what our field service workers have identified is that because they build beautiful rapport, beautiful trust with their farmers or the industry that they're working with every single day, they're actually finding that they're having conversations that they might not be skilled for, um, but, you know, it is around those situational stresses. Whilst Royal's got 25 staff across the state, we can't be everywhere. We've got over 2,000 um, individual producers and more, so that's a huge space. So what we're actually doing is creating a network of people who do find themselves face-to-face -face with people in those isolated communities, particularly ag and forestry and mining and those kind of ones, primary industries, so that we can upskill them to have safe conversations so that the field service workers aren't kind of feeling that they can't tackle those conversations. But if someone is addressing that or bringing those situational stresses up, the person that's, um, I guess, unpacking that can also feel safe and, you know, find that conduit towards help as well. So it's kind of putting more eyes and ears on the ground, not mouths at all. Um, we're not training it. Um, more councillors, but yeah, that's, yeah. We'll look forward Friends to hearing more about that. Lauren yeah. Harper, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. With Raw. Yeah, Larissa Smith talking to Lauren Harper from Rural Alive and Well. And if you need someone to talk to, the Raw website is the place to go. On the country out today, International Women's Day. We'll check the weather in about 10 minutes, 12 minutes from now. Well, from Launceston back to Hobart, where Fiona Breen is at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture with a couple of leaders in agricultural science at the university. Afternoon, Fiona. Afternoon, Tony, and thank you very much. Uh, yes, we have a couple of amazing women here. Professor Cathy Evans, plant pathologist and all-round leader at the Institute uh, of Agriculture Science and lecturer in pasture science, Dr Beth Penrose, a very important person here in terms of that science, but also in her mentoring of students and honours students here at the University of Tasmania. Welcome to the country hour, Cathy. Lovely to be here, Fiona. And Beth, nice to have you here. Uh, and we're inside, which is good because it's very windy and a little bit cool outside and sprinkling down here in Hobart. Uh, look, I wanted to start with some stats. Uh, we got this, these stats from the government, uh, from the Australian government, uh, which uh, an, an annual scorecard on the gendered participation in science, tech, engineering and maths. Uh, for 2022 and in Australia the proportion of STEM qualified jobs held by women was 15% in 2021, up 2% in the 12 months prior. In Australia across the entire STEM workforce, which is that science and tech workforce, just 27% are women and they earn 18% less than their male counterparts. And then a couple of other stats from the United Nations observances on women and girls in science. Globally, women are typically given smaller research grants than their male colleagues. And while they represent 33.3% of all researchers, only 12% of members of national science academies are women. I'll start with you, Dr. Beth Penrose. Pretty startling statistics. Yep, it's not great. There's a long way to go. 
Um, I would say that is possibly not representative of um, agriculture per se. I think the STEM workforce is encompasses a lot of different areas. For example, there are very few women, relatively speaking, in physics and engineering and, and mathematics. And possibly we do a little bit better on those stats in terms of agricultural science. Okay, and Cathy, what's your impression of those stats? Look, I'd back up Beth there. And I think even within agricultural science, we have sub-disciplines in those. So for example, I work in plant pathology, which has quite a high representation of women. And I think that's because, well, plant pathology is like, it's like being a plant doctor. Whereas if you were talking about something like uh, ag engineering, then, you know, that could be completely the other way. So uh, it, it, there, there is variation within that. But, you know, it is, it is also quite startling to hear those sort of statistics. And, uh, you know, there, there is a way to go. Dr Beth Penrose, what's your impression of women in ag science uh, across that? Can, are there stats around? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, the latest survey I've seen is from 2016, so it's a little while ago, but I think about 32% were officially part of the agricultural workforce in Australia. But that doesn't account for a lot of women who are essentially working in agriculture um, as part of the family business. And often those are not counted in those kind of stats, so it's likely to be very much higher. What I would also say is around the pay, gender pay gap is, I've just looked at the um, Australian statistics to do with student leavers, like graduates um, from university. And actually, it's one of the only sectors where uh, female graduates get paid more on average than males. So wow. I think the average for uh, female graduates is 72,000 and the average for males is 70,000. So um, we're doing well in that, in that respect. That's f fantastic. What do you think about women in uh, agriculture, science, academia in terms of pay? Well, I think that's a slightly different story. Um, I think it's, it's much harder uh, for lots of reasons for women to uh, pr get promoted and to, to rise to, to uh, much higher positions. Like, I, I think Cathy's the only, the second, only the second ever female professor of agriculture in the history of, of the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture at UTAS. So that in 60 years, two wow. professors is not heaps. Um, so I think there's a way to go in terms of um, promoting women and, and getting women in, around the table and at the top. Okay, over to you, Professor Cathy <laughs> Evans. Uh, that's, wow, what a statistic, only two in 60 years. Uh, and were you the second or the first? Oh, we had Professor Caroline Muhammad, of course, a, a real trailblazer. I think we might have Tina Acuna in there also. But... Uh, Yes, and, and we've all had our own individual journeys there um, and all, all got our own individual stories to tell, of course. And what's your story? How, how have you sort of travelled through your progression up to Professor? Yes, well, I, I guess um, like many um, women, we don't necessarily have that linear pathway and that's, that's to do with our, a lot with our circumstances. So, um, f for example, after doing ag science, I went out and worked in, in country Victoria and got that industry experience. Uh, came, as, as what sort of job? Uh, in uh, uh, R&D, working with farmers, and I'd have to say farmers have been my best teachers, um, and really then got that passion to go on and, and, and go to higher study. Uh, and then some time in, in Adelaide uh, doing a higher degree, postdoctoral researcher. I had my children over there. And I think the thing that's really helped me, you know, I had childcare on site. 
um, at the university. At the university, a very supportive partner who's also a scientist. That helps. Um, and I and I would have to say, you either have to have a very supportive partner or a very good supportive network. Um, and then coming to Tasmania, and I think for me, I came down here because it was a wonderful opportunity in agriculture in Tasmania. But back then, it was very much sink or swim. So here's your office, here's your lab, go get grant funding. So I think I spent, um, the, my pathway has probably been quite long because, you know, I just went out in industry, tried to find out what the research questions were, tried to get the money. So, so back then, there was much less support. There were, there were no leadership programs. Uh, and actually, with my first child, there was no maternity leave. Oh, wow. So you so, didn't get paid anything when you had a child. It, precisely. No support. So um, that was different the second time around. But, you know, that's not that long ago. <laughs> and uh, so I think but these days um, I, th I think there's a lot more support and we're a lot more aware of all the issues around um, inclusion, equity, diversity. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm really – it's really great to see the progress that, that has been made. Obviously, a lot of much more to go. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've had quite a journey. Dr Beth Penrose, you're sort of at a different stage of your career. How do you find things? Now, listening to Professor Cathy Evans there, what's your story? Well, I'm in a much more fortunate position. You know, there's people like Cathy who have um, blazed that trail for us. Um, you know, I have been very, very fortunate myself in having an exceptionally supportive husband who is also a scientist, to be fair, um, but who has been willing to work part-time, for example, to look after our child, um, who's been willing to move a lot. So we moved from Nottingham in... Well, we moved from Lancaster to Nottingham in the UK, from Nottingham to um, Tasmania, which is a big move. And Huge move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he didn't have a job for a while um, when we first moved. And and the, the social pressure for him to get a job, actually... And the sort of idea that we moved for my job and not for his job was quite a big deal. That's not even that long ago, yeah. you know, like five or six years ago. Um, so I think a lot's changed and, and I did get excellent maternity leave, to be fair. Um, but it's there's a lot to go, I would say. It's still quite hard um, in the workforce. You probably, are you working full time? Yeah, I work full time, yeah. And uh, do you have much support? you know, these days in, in, to be able to achieve that sort of stuff? I mean, there's still, you've obviously got a good partner, etc. but uh, how look, does that go? Look, I think it is much easier if you have family around who are willing to help um, with that kind of stuff, which my, my family are all 10,000 miles away. Yeah. Um, so that's not quite the case. But, um, yeah, I think... For example, when I was when I came back to work part time when my child was three and a half months old, and I came back to work full time when he was seven months, and when I when he was seven months, he was still breastfeeding like twice a day in the day. So I would, was very very fortunate to have him in childcare at the university, and would be able to go down the hill and feed him, and then come back twice a day. So, um, and Tia supported me to do that. So I think. There can be heaps of support, but it is very difficult. What I would say is, is missing at the moment, and this isn't just for maternity leave and for women, but for people, who, anybody who has a long period of time where they're off, whether that's from sickness or from caring responsibilities of any kind, I think there's not enough support in universities in general 
um, to help people to to uh, rev back up into full time. In. Yeah, okay. Research particularly. Very interesting comment. Uh, so, Professor Cathy Evans, I mean, you've helped break through a mm. glass ceiling here at the University of Tasmania. Did you have any mentors? You said you didn't have much support when you sort of first came here. Uh, look, yes, I, I've had mentors in different places yep. um, and I've, I've gone out to seek them. And what I would like to say, though, that... that the best mentoring I think I've had is through our... We've had some leaders in TR who have helped us step up into roles. And often it's, it's not... It's a quiet support. So you might even know, not know that they're putting you forward to help you go into some role, whether... Um, and I guess I've done a lot of work in the Institute to help us change the way we organise research to get more impact. And, and to, to tell a positive story... Um, what that eventually led to is uh, having the confidence to put a grant application in to get what's the, the TAS Farm Innovation Hub going. And that's a big project, that wasn't is, it? Uh, yeah, go and, and, go and look it up on the website. Yep. Um, that is really fundamentally, fundamentally changing the way we do research in terms of uh, involving the, the people who will benefit from that work right from the beginning. And, um, and if you look at the way, uh, in, instead of just the research working in isolation, that hub team has um, new roles in it called things called knowledge brokers and adoption officers. And uh, there's a lot of females in that team. And it just shows that the future of the way we do work is very collaborative. I've heard your earlier speakers talk about the need for those people skills. And I think the advances in technology are, are going to only be very helpful for women in their careers going forward because we can bring to bear those other skills that we can bring. I mean, not all women and, not, and there are men with those skills as well. But the whole way we're organising, the way we do the work is much not more inclusive. Not so isolated. It, it's not it so isolated. It brings diverse functions to bear, not just the researchers, but everything that has to wrap around the research to get that impact on the ground. Okay, last uh, comment from Dr Beth Pen Penrose. Have you had mentors or do you have anything that you'd like to add to this discussion? Yeah, I mean, I've had some great mentors. I would say that um, I've got a mixture of male and female mentors and that a lot of female mentors are very overstretched and that can be really problematic because there's not that much, many women at the top, so it's really difficult for them because they're trying to support people coming up um, and that's really hard. What I would say is that in the, in the teaching program, in the undergraduate and graduate program, I see so much hope. You know, there's some awesome students coming through. For example, one of our students won a university medal um, in December at graduation. Um, the first one for quite a long time, um, Esther Magor. She's now working for um, Botanical Resources. And, um, you know, she's exceptionally talented. We have so many talented um, female students that are coming through. So You've got quite a cohort of, of young women coming through in that mix, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I don't know the exact stats, but it's generally more than 50% women, yeah. Okay, and good collaborative team that you've got men and women, young men and women through that uh, cohort? Yeah, and I would say that um, through the university experience, that can be really helpful for them because a lot of them have gone to single-set schools um, and so that university environment can be really helpful in um, sort of helping them to understand each other and to build more collaborative teams as they go through. Okay, Professor uh, Kathy Evans and Dr Beth P P Penrose from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, thanks so much for joining the Country Hour.
Thank, Thank you. you, Fiona. And that's Fiona Breen there at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture with Professor Cathy Evans and lecturer in pasture science, Dr Beth Penrose. Coming up, we'll take you to a Women in Dairy luncheon. We'll also have Richard Barney along with the latest on the livestock markets. And we'll check the weather in just a moment. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. The Prime Minister's confirmed he'll travel to the US in coming days for a meeting with President Joe Biden. It follows report that UK's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, will be making his way to San Diego. The three countries have been negotiating the construction of nuclear powered submarines for Australia. The former director of Tasmania's State Emergency Service has told an inquest into the death of a woman who died in the 2016 floods that the area's regional manager had been put on a targeted work performance plan five years earlier. The Australian Electoral Commission says it's concerned about the security of personal details which are distributed to political parties and candidates during elections. The AEC has told a federal parliamentary committee on electoral matters it should examine whether parties should be given more funding to ensure information remains secure. And the Dogs Home of Tasmania says between 110 and 120 dogs are currently being surrendered to their adoption centres a month, many because of cost of living pressure for their owners. More news at one. Time now to check that all-important weather and Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. Hey, Tony, how are you going? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit strange, this weather. Just looking outside, it just won't go away, will it? It won't turn yeah. into sunny and beautiful and lovely warm conditions. It's, it's a very slow improvement, but it's not as windy or as wet or quite as cold as yesterday, although the, the wind does feel pretty icy today. Had lots of rain come into the west in the order of 20 to 60 millimetres up to 9am, but it only, you know, petered off to around 1 to 2 millimetres making it to the east coast. Uh, the northwest coast had 3 to 5 millimetres. Parts of the northeast had uh, 15 to 25 millimetres, but that was mostly high ground and Scottsdale had a nice 10 millimetres. For the rest of today, we're looking at uh, plenty of steady showers coming into western and southern Tasmania and uh, a few light showers possible uh, elsewhere during the afternoon and early evening period, although it's likely we'll have a bit of a gap in showers between around Launceston and Evandale, that kind of area, and a rain shadow. Looking at another 5 to 15 millimetres for the remainder of today, about the western far south, but only less than uh, 3 millimetres elsewhere. And uh, after all the excitement and the winds yesterday, we're probably only going to see some peak gusts to around 60 to 80 kilometres per hour in most places tomorrow. That's down from about 90 to 100 uh, kilometres per hour gusts experienced yesterday. All right. Uh, Now, what's going to happen over the next few days? Are we going to settle into some lovely weather? Well, eventually, uh, you know, into tomorrow and Friday and Saturday, uh, steady showers slowly decreasing about the west and far south. Uh, We'll have some showers popping up uh, elsewhere uh, tomorrow afternoon, just some light showers, less than a millimetre or two, but it will slowly warm up towards the end of the week. It's going to be a fine day for most parts on Friday, with the exception of those showers coming into the west. Uh, there'll be some morning fog around. Temperatures are back to near average, so around that 20-degree mark or low 20s. Saturday, much the same, uh, with mostly fine conditions, apart from some light showers about the western far south and Bass Strait Islands at times. Bit of a cool change on Sunday, though, with uh, some cooler southerlies coming up from, from the south with a cold front, which will drop us back down into the teens for maximum temperatures, but uh, nothing nothing too drastic. Just a slow improvement after a very quick turn southwards yesterday afternoon with that front. OK, Luke, now warnings. Do we still have some? 
Yeah, a couple. Not as many as this time yesterday, but we've got a gale warning uh, still out for southern coastal waters between Tasman Island to Lower, Lower Rocky Point and also for the central north coast for westerly winds and a strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters, southwest lakes and all southeast inshore waters apart from the Derwent. Tomorrow, a strong wind warning for all coastal waters apart from the Upper East Coast as things begin to sort of peel away and you get a bit more shelter. In terms of coastal waters today, very steady westerly stream, 20 to 30 knots, reaching 35 knots about the south and through the central north. Tomorrow winds more in the 20 to 30 knot range but staying westerly. Got a west to southwesterly swell coming onto the state, 5 to 6 metres today, gradually decaying to 3 to 4 metres during tomorrow. Through Bass Strait, 2 to 3 metre westerly offshore and then uh, decreasing a little bit to 1 to 2 metres offshore tomorrow. Up the east coast is southerly Sorry, south to southwesterly, below one metre, tending southwesterly three to four metres in the south. And tomorrow that increases a little bit to south to southwesterly, one to two metres coming up the coast, tending southwesterly three to four metres in the south. And significant wave height, 6.6 .6 metres on the east coast and around 1.5 metres, oh sorry, 6.6 .6 metres on the west coast rather, and around 1.5 metres on the east. 6.6 .6 metres would be bad for the east coast. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> wouldn't be good at all. Oh, the surf. Board riders would like it, wouldn't they? Well, All right, Luke. They would, yeah. Thank you for that, Luke. No worries. Have a good day, Tony. You too. Luke Johnston from the Bureau. In just a moment, we'll take you to the northwest of the state to a Women in Dairy luncheon. ABC Listen. So, uh, what's the craziest question you've ever been asked on the Dr. Carl podcast? We've had everything from prawn allergies to urine volume and what turned out to be giant cosmic vacuum cleaners. We've had an AI writing a sassy email, cheese causing weird dreams. The background is that nothing is really impossible in science. Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy have all the answers on the Dr. Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Plenty coming up in today's edition of the Country Hour, including uh, Richard Bailey with the Livestock Markets. Well, we've been to a breakfast to celebrate International Women's Day, so let's head to the northwest to a special luncheon. Why not? And our reporter, Meg Powell, who finds herself in a vineyard. G'day, Meg. Hello, Tony. I feel sorry for you today because I'm sitting out here at Sassafras. I've got rolling green hills in the distance. I can see an irrigator hard at work. The vines are looking very fluffy and full, ready to be picked. Oh, just a few weeks, I reckon. Uh, it's a pretty easy drive out here too, which is good because I think women from all over the state have come out here today for the Women in Dairies luncheon. I think there's about 100 people here or something like that. Uh, it's, it's great. And I've, I've dragged two of them away from lunch to come and sit with me now and have a chat. And their names are Kate Gofton, who's a farmer from Scottsdale and the chair of Dairy Taz. And we've also got Nikki Atkins, who's a dairy farmer near Deloraine. Hello, Nikki and Kate. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm looking very nervous, but you're going to do fine, I reckon. We'll, we'll start um, with your story, Kate, a little bit. Where, what was your first experience in agriculture? Uh, I never really set out to be involved in agriculture. It happened by default when I happened to marry a dairy farmer, so I now class myself as a dairy farmer. Uh, I don't milk cows. I never have. Uh, so my experience has been more about the administrative uh, and bookkeeping uh, side of things, uh, which is 
probably an area that most farmers' wives fall into. Um, but I do stipulate that that's not just because of their gender, it is generally because of the skill set that they have worked up over a period of time. Uh, it's just a natural progression uh, once they make that decision, obviously, to become involved in the business. And Nikki, uh, same question for you. What was your first experience in agriculture? My first experience in agriculture was back in my late teens. A friend invited me to join Rural Youth. And so I was uh, part of Rural Youth for many years where I met my husband, Mark. And uh, it was interesting because my mother actually grew up on a dairy farm. And uh, when I married Mark, she said, your grandfather would turn in his grave <laughs> if he knew you'd... Because, I mean, back then, it, it was a, a really hard life. And we're fortunate now with technologies and, and tractors and things. It's not so labour-intensive physically. Um, and then when our boys uh, started full-time school, Mark and I had a conversation about whether I'd return to work or not or whether I'd learn to be a dairy farmer. So that was what I did. So I became a Dairy Australia cereal pest where <laughs> I ordered every book that I could find and I became a theoretical dairy farmer through the literature from Dairy Australia and then put that into practice on farm alongside Mark. Oh dear, Nikki, your grandfather would be terribly disappointed in you, I think, <laughs> at this point. So let's think back to your 18-year-old selves, both of you, which is obviously not very long ago for either of you. Did you think this was a career I'm going to end up in? I think from my perspective, I don't think anybody probably thought of agriculture as a career in, in when I was 18. I don't think it was even on the radar as a career. Uh, I think that's something that has... Uh, certainly evolved over time and it's quite quite remarkably different now to what it was then so yes yeah, certainly wasn't ever part of my career pathway or as I said by choice it was by default more than anything but I think it is uh, pretty pretty awesome to see the opportunities that there are in the ag career space these days and you know the generation coming through and and for the future generations there are certainly uh, plenty of opportunities to get involved in a fabulous industry. What about you Nikki? Oh no not at all no uh, finance was was my background um, a, a career in agriculture was never never even considered. And do you feel that women can bring something to the table in this industry? Both of, Neither of you plan to be in it, obviously, but do you feel you brought something? I feel that women play a vital role in, in the ag space. Um, whether or not you have an off-farm job or not, either way, you usually live on your farm within your business. So whether you work full time on your farm or whether you're the Saturday warrior who goes and opens the farm gate when shifting cattle, everyone has a vital role. I also feel the added complexities with compliance within the industry. Women bring along a lot of the organisational skills to their businesses uh, to ensure that we compete on a global uh, e economy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Nikki. I think, you know, we're in a we're in a digital world, so a lot of the compliance and um requirements that are put on us as a business are often done electronically and it you know, it generally falls back to the um 
woman woman on the farm to actually try and deal with a lot of that and certainly something I struggle with is the technology and trying to keep up with um, you know I don't know how to fix computer issues and all that sort of stuff but you, you, you just have to you have to keep struggling through that and and uh, I think yeah it's it I completely agree with Nikki that it's it's a kind of a different uh, requirement to what it perhaps used to be as well so we're, we're there to support and and take care of those sort of more menial um, administrative tasks I guess. It was only only in 1994 that women were legally able to be recognised as farmers, which is not very long ago. Have we come very far since then? I believe so. I believe there's a lot more public recognition of the part that women do play on farms. Uh, and I guess we have to actually hold ourselves to be responsible for, for projecting um, that information and to let people know just exactly what we are doing every day and, and what our uh, pivotal role is in running those businesses. So there's a certain individual responsibility to make sure we're doing that. Uh, and it, yeah, I think we've progressed a long way and I think that there's a lot of community and uh, social respect for the part that women are playing uh, on farms around Australia. And Kate, you might be able to answer this. How is the dairy industry going in terms of not only including women but supporting women? Uh, I think, you know, uh, Dairy Australia, Dairy Taz, um, you know, they although they don't they don't tend to run gender specific extension programs, they obviously as Nikki's referred to, that's where she did a lot of her learning uh, to then implement on farm and I think they're very proactive in that space and there's plenty of opportunity to learn. And what I really like about it is you can kind of pick a little bit of a niche area that interests you. You, you can't be expected to learn and know about everything, but I think as a way to stimulate your own brain and your personal development, you can kind of pick a little bit the areas that you really want to dive deeper into and there's all the resources and availability to do that. So I think that's really important for your own personal development. Nikki, do you feel supported as a woman in the dairy industry? And that oh. might be different now as, as compared to when you started out. Well, yes, I, I believe so. And um, Just off the back of Kate's comment about um, finding the niche areas that interest you, uh, my role on the farm has been, you know, you can we measure our pasture, we do nutrient management for our fertiliser. You know, there's a whole bunch of ways where numbers come into to the farm and that's what really interests me. So that's probably where I've found my space. And uh, Nikki, I think you told me before you're not a burn your bra kind of, kind of woman. <laughs> Sorry to shame you on uh, radio here, but um, do you feel that there is a way to go in terms of women in this industry or have we fixed, have we fixed any, all the issues? I think it's a lot to do with generation and I feel that as our husbands and our sons come through, there is naturally going to be that respect for women within the agricultural space because they see now what their mothers their wives, their sisters are doing on farm. Do you still face challenges day to day as a woman? It's usually from generations older than I am and 
I think that that's perhaps a cultural issue across society in general. Um, yeah. Maybe um, to finish, or do you want to add something to that there, Kate? I was just going to say, I, you know, I do think there is still always going to be an element of your physical limitations. I don't think we can actually get around that, but I think where we have progressed in that space uh, is a lot of the technology and infrastructure that you can adopt that will actually relieve the reliance on that physical strength, if you like. Um, so, yeah, although it may not be addressed as a specific issue, it's being addressed through other avenues anyway. And I reckon that's about all we have time for. Thank you, Kate Gofton and Nikki Atkins, for coming on the Country Hour. Back to you, Tony, in the studio. Thank you, Meg Powell at Sassafras there at the Vineyard for the Dairy Luncheon. Well, on this International Women's Day, the call has gone out for more women working in agriculture to apply for a Churchill Fellowship. Belinda Hazel is a member of the Churchill Fellows of Tasmania and says today is a great day for women and men in agriculture to think about expanding their horizons and apply for the fellowship. Uh, it, it means a range of things. I mean, we have come a long way in the visibility of women working in ag, but I think there's still a little bit of a way to go, particularly around equity, which is the theme for this year's International Women's Day. You know, we can we can make a range of resources and opportunities available to women, but what we need to do is recognise that there's different circumstances that they have and with those resources and opportunities, we need to change them up in different ways so every woman, depending on their circumstance and where they are, have the equal opportunity to be able to be the best they can be. And I know the treatment of, of women in agriculture has been one of your, your, your things you've been focusing on over the past few years. Has that seen an improvement? It has, but we've still have a long way to go. The important thing for me, Tony, is around conversations in workplaces. So it's having women part of the team, sitting down and having a discussion with them to see how they're working well as a team, if there's any issues, what you can change up to make sure that they have those equal opportunities, that they have those equity chances so that, as I said, that they can be the best that they can be and they're working in a safe environment. And that that's what everybody wants, whether you're male or female, is to work in a safe environment and have the opportunity to be able to have a good career, be able to contribute in the space that you're working in, and also have those opportunities so that if you can change up what you're doing, look at different ways of working, whether you can advance through that organisation in different ways that there is that opportunity provided. And one thing we're talking about today, uh, Churchill Fellowships, and I suppose that's that's something like a reward for doing a, a good job and, and wanting to do a better job and wanting to learn more about, especially agriculture. You're looking for more potential Churchill Fellowships uh, applicants in agriculture. Yes, we are. I've had the opportunity to be awarded a Churchill Fellowship in 2018. And in 2019, I had the opportunity to use that fellowship to travel to a range of different countries to advance my knowledge, particularly around how we can use our systems to address social licence concerns. And that was and a marvellous opportunity. The thing about the Churchill Fellowships is you don't have to have a qualification. You can have a passion for the subject matter, 
that you want to explore and you can apply for a fellowship and if awarded one, you then have the opportunity to be able to gain that knowledge from a global perspective in the country's and the areas that you want to target specifically and then bring that knowledge back home to Australia and impart that in your community so that we can all benefit from that knowledge. The application process can be challenging for some. So the face-to-face drop-in session that we're holding on the 15th of March at the Wool Store from 5.30 to 6.30 is an opportunity for people who are thinking about applying for a fellowship to speak to those that have gone through that process and get some understanding around some of the things that you need to consider when looking at applying. And it might be making sure that you have your topic clear, Mm -hmm. that it's not so broad that you're not going to be able to achieve what you really want to achieve. Belinda Hazel, a committee member of the Churchill Fellows Association of Tasmania, and more information on the Churchill website. You have plenty of time to apply for a fellowship as well. Well, time on a Wednesday afternoon to head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Good afternoon, Tony. Nice and windy and uh, a bit cool maybe at Powerana, was it? A little bit of change in temperature <laughs> around, around the state, uh, but some very good reports of some very good rains over a sort of a three or four day period, you know, from the far northwest to the far northeast down the Fingal Valley. Not as much down south, but there were some, some reports of some quite good falls in places, but, you know, like up to 50 mils, I heard across a lot of the north and northwest and Fingal Valley up the northeast, so... Uh, very good start to the season. Uh, obviously, like always with the order break, you need follow-ups, but um, you've got to, to get follow-ups, you've got to have the first rain. So, uh, good start. And I can imagine most farmers would be saying, oh, yeah, but we need just a little bit more. Oh, you're always <laughs> a little bit apprehensive this time of the year, you know, like... Yeah. Uh, but we are, we're getting towards the middle of March, so uh, it's it's a good time to get a break. And, um, you know, um, I think the, the, the forecast is for it to not to stay as cold as this for very long, so that's good. Yeah, all right. Well, um, how was the uh, selling yesterday? Um, there were just a few more cattle, 79 trade and grown cattle at uh, Piranha. Um, pretty mixed lineup, really. Uh, most of the yearlings met sort of pretty similar type market um, to the last few weeks. you got steers making anywhere from sort of most of them 340 to 380 cents a kilo, uh, down to 318 cents uh, for some lighter ones. Uh, yearling heifers 344 to 364, and then 272 to 320 for plain quality uh, paddock uh, ones to go back to the paddock. Uh, no grown steers and bullocks. There were some grown heifers. These made 260 to 330 cents. The the top of those were bought by local butchers. So um, that market improved significantly, and that's basically because there weren't any steers there. They needed some cattle to kill. Cow market was a little bit stronger. Uh, the best cows, best heavy beef cows, two fifty to two hundred and seventy-two cents, averaging just over two sixty cents, which is about six cents better than last week. So that's uh, a good sign for anyone selling cows. Um, and a few heavy bulls, one ninety-six to to two thirty, most of them over two hundred cents a kilo. Um, so that was that. Tomorrow we head out to Piranha, uh, over 3,500 cattle, uh, weaner sale. If you're interested in seeing the, 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 some of the top uh, lines of breeder 
um, you know, well-bred calves, uh, good place to go anywhere in the next couple of weeks out to Piranha. You'll see them. Um, really looking forward to that. It'll be, be good. Uh, 12 o'clock start, and um, it'll be a big day. Three and a half thousand's a big, uh, big number for us. Yeah, yeah, they're good numbers, aren't they? Yep, good numbers. Uh, I noticed there's some cattle in those numbers that would normally be in their second or third sales have come forward. Um, yeah, so, so, yeah, look, it'll be just looking at the at the sheet, uh, you know, the, the, there are, there'll be some magnificent lines of cattle there, wiener cattle. And uh, just to remind, I think the bull sales start, what, next week? Yeah, bull sales next week um, and over the next couple of weeks, depending on which breed you're chasing. But uh, as I said last week, if you're looking for bulls, you need to... Talk to your stud stock agent pretty quickly because um, you need to be prepared. Yeah, exactly. All right, Richard, lamb and sheep. Okay, there were uh, more lambs around, 1,797 lambs, which is almost 1,000 more than last week. No weight, absolutely no weight in the lambs at all. Um, The vast majority of lambs were sort of light and light trade lambs, just a few trade lambs. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that probably the, the, the over-the-hooks prices interstate are still pretty good and that's where most of the lambs are going. And, uh, you know, and I think it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of weeks, but I reckon we'll probably see a few more lambs come into the market. Um, the, the better processing lambs were cheaper, but the lighter processing lambs and, and light MK lambs were dearer. Uh, and and the restocker lambs were dearer, particularly for shorn lambs. Over anything that was shorn, and particularly bear shorn, they were very keen on. Um, the best of the lambs made anywhere from 120 up to 170. Big range there, but if you if they were woolly and just a little bit second quality, they uh, they didn't attract much competition. Uh, light trade lambs anywhere from 94 to 158, and then light MK lambs anywhere from 72 to $114. Then the restockers bought very small lambs from 50 to $55, and then sort of hopped into the next little run of lambs, anywhere from 100 to 148 and did pay for um, some better types of lambs. They paid up to 159 148 to 159 for trade weight lambs. As I said, they, they had to be shorn to create that sort of competition, but... Just good confidence in that market, in that sort of lighter trade market. Um, over in the mutton market, um, much well, not much smaller, but still very small yarding of 612 mutton. This market was a little bit dearer. Recovered some of the losses of last week, ten to fifteen dollars dearer in places. Um, extra heavy sheep made sixty-eight to seventy-two dollars. Heavy sheep sixty-four to seventy-two. Medium weights fifty to seventy-eight and then light sheep, 40 to $50. So in summary, a lot more sheep in that sort of uh, $60 to $70 range than we've seen for a little while. So that was good news. Um, sort of it appears that one buys out one week and then another buys in the next week. And there's, I really, just going back to the lambs for a minute, there's really not enough lambs for any of the, uh, the, the guys with decent, uh, orders to get their book open because there's just not enough lambs for them to have a crack at. So that probably accounted for the fact that those better lambs were cheaper. We'll talk Friday, Richard. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back Friday with the mainland markets. That's our country hour for today. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.